It's Tuesday, August 21st, 2018. It's The Gist. I'm Max Kerman, sitting in for Mike Pesca. For the last month and a half, I wake up on Monday mornings and read the reviews to Who is America, Showtime's new television show starring and created by British comedian Sasha Baron Cohen. If you haven't seen it, the show features Cohen dressed up in disguise, playing different cartoon-like stereotypes of characters from across the political spectrum. He interviews politicians, celebrities, Trump voters, and through a series of creative gotcha scenarios, he's often successful at pranking his guests into saying and doing ridiculous things. Now, although Cohn is remembered as somewhat of a darling when it comes to his Ali G character, the reaction from reviewers to this show has been somewhat mixed. The Independent wrote that Episode 6 doesn't know how to satirize liberals. Vox Magazine says Sasha Baron Cohen's provocations are exhausting and dangerous. Now, as imperfect as the show may be, I think Cohn is often onto something special with the scenes he creates. Because it's a comedy, he's able to shine a light on the psyche of politicians that journalists can't quite expose or demonstrate so plainly. In the first episode, there's a memorable bit where Cohen, posing as an Israeli anti-terror expert, manages to convince former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh to participate in a PSA called Kindergardians, not kindergartens, Kindergardians, that would teach four-year-olds how to shoot guns to thwart any would-be school shooters. Here's Joe Walsh speaking to camera on Who is America in support of arming toddlers. The intensive three-week kindergarten course introduces specially selected children from 12 to 4 years old to pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. In less than a month, less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. It's a truly absurd result. I found the episode funny, I found it a little scary, but I also found it interesting. Now here is Joe Walsh on CNN explaining himself and how he got duped by Cohen. Yeah, Michael, it was just crazy. Look, he, they flew me out to D.C. They put me up in a hotel. They put me in a limo. They, they sent me off to this studio in Virginia. Again, all under the lie that I was getting an award from some Israeli TV station because I'm a great supporter of Israel. So, after- so wait, all it took was a plane trip, a hotel, and a made-up award to get a grown adult to appear on television and say something so obviously stupid? Now, maybe this shouldn't shock me, but it did, and it got me thinking about incentives and why people act the way they do. I was listening to yesterday's episode of The Gist with an excellent open from guest host Steve Kornacki about Rudy Giuliani and his complicated legacy. As Steve recounts, Giuliani, up until very recently, was beloved from all corners of the political spectrum. He was known as America's mayor. Today, however, you can't get through a day without Giuliani on some talk show saying something controversial or incoherent. Liberals, of course, can't stand him ever since he became a vocal supporter of Trump. They hate him even more now that he's acting as Trump's talking head lawyer. And it just seems odd to me that someone like Giuliani, at this stage in his life, would risk his legacy for someone like Trump, who is so obviously flawed. But after seeing Joe Walsh on Who is America and then watching his account of the incident on CNN, I don't think it's any more complicated, in some cases, than old guys just wanting to remain famous. They like being on camera. They like being talked about by any means necessary, no matter if the result is good, bad, or ugly. The narcissism is simple. There's that old expression that if you're looking for an answer to a complicated question, you should just follow the money. And yes, I think fame and money are mostly tied together. But I also think you shouldn't discount the simple pleasure of seeing yourself on national TV, no matter the cost to your reputation. 
Today on the show, I spiel about experimenting with trolls. But first, I talk to the man who's been counting Trump's lies, or should I say false things, 2,321 of them to be exact. Daniel Dale, the Toronto Star Washington correspondent, joins the show to talk about what it's like being a Canadian living in D.C., covering Trump and American politics. Daniel Dale is the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. You may have first heard about Dale for his excellent reporting on former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, who seriously turned heads around here and in the U.S., and now is on the beat in Washington, D.C. In 2016, Dale began documenting every single lie or false claim made by Donald Trump on the campaign trail, and he continues this practice today. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much. As a Canadian covering American politics, what was the biggest learning curve for you with how the press covers politics in the U.S. compared to Canada? I think it's similar. I think what's different is the the quantity of journalists. It's the the unpredictability and arguably dysfunction of of Congress, which stands in stark contrast to the way that the Canadian Parliament operates with with strict you know party discipline um, and especially in a minority government uh, in a majority government order. And I think the issues just feel they feel bigger and they feel more consequential. Um, it feels like. The American government is constantly de- debating life and death issues, um, issues about the the human- humanity and 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 lives and livelihoods of, of various kinds of people. And so the, the debates that we have in in the Canadian Parliament often just feel uh, insignificant by comparison. Now, I've always felt, with the exception of the Fords, which you covered, that Canadian political reporting generally stays away from the personal lives of politicians, and especially compared to the coverage and intrigue that U.S. politicians get. Now, um, is there truth to the idea that Canadian journalists have different boundaries for how they cover the more gossipy sides of politics compared to their American uh, journalistic colleagues? I think it's possible. You know, I haven't, I haven't been in, in, for example, the the Ottawa Parliamentary Press Gallery, so I haven't talk to to those reporters about this i think we, we do have fewer stories about affairs for example and i don't know if it's because canadian politicians are having fewer affairs or be doing a better job hiding <laughs> it or or if canadian journalists are, are deciding that that is not that is not news but um yeah i think that the forwards were an interesting case where you know we had to in Canada, ask ourselves a lot of questions that I think American reporters would just not ask. You know, it was like, you know, talking about the the mayor being an alcoholic at at the Toronto Star. You know, we we had conversations about, you know, is this how relevant is this? You know, can we prove that it's affecting his job? You know, I think for a lot of American journalists, if you find out the mayor or the congressman or whatever is is an alcoholic who's not showing up to work, that would that would more indisputably be a story than it was for us. Yeah, you guys had to kind of ask the question, like, do we want to dive into that that particular subject matter? Now, um, you've been one of the most consistent trackers of Donald Trump's lies. Now, is there a pattern with the way he lies? How would you describe Trump's relationship with the truth? Does he purposefully evade it? Uh, does he even understand uh, it exists? Like, uh, what, can you can you see his brain turning when he's in the middle of saying something that he's going for a lie, or does it, or is he aware of it at all? <laughs> I, I think often he is. I think I'm, I'm comfortable calling Trump a serial liar, and I, I'm not a columnist. You know, I don't. I don't think that's a matter of opinion. I think that that's provable, objective fact that this president is a is a serial liar. In some cases, we don't know if he is just ignorant of the facts, um, if he is confused by what's going on, 
Um, sometimes he gets his number numbers wrong, and I and I feel like I can see his his brain turning in a way that suggests he just doesn't know what the number is. In other cases, though, I think it's clear that he is purposefully deceiving. And in in a, there are a bunch of cases where I don't think there's even any question that he is lying. That we can use that the the L word, like when when he says, you know, the head of the Boy Scouts called me to say my speech was the best speech ever <laughs> given to the Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scouts come out and say. No, no one, no one ever called him. No one ever told him that. Like that, that's a lot, you know, there's, so I understand the debate about, you know, false claim or falsehood or, you know, what do we call it? And I, in many cases, I, I myself use that word because we don't know what this, what, what, what he knows about what he's talking about. But in some cases he's clearly intentionally making things up and, and that happens with, with high frequency. Mm-hmm. Now, now there are a few different outlets that track the, the Trump lies. Uh, there's you, there's Washington Post, Politico. Do you reference each other, and w- what's the cause of uh, discrepancy between your current accounts? Would you say? Yeah, so I um I will cite the the Post on occasion. Sometimes they'll catch something of uh, a false claim that I hadn't caught. So rather than reinvent the wheel, I'll just in my own, I'll just be like as as the Washington Post reported, such and such. The the reason that their count is is much higher than mine is that they it's it's a methodological difference. So they're counting what they call false and misleading claims. I am just counting false claims. So th- this is not really a, a criticism of of them because I, I think it's great that the Post does what they do and and uh, yeah they help they help me out a lot. But in some cases, things they count as misleading, I think, are just objectively true. So they'll say, for example, like dozens of times Trump has boasted about the stock market, and they'll count that as a misleading claim because Trump used to, under Obama, dismiss the stock market as a as a useful indicator. Or they'll say that you know Trump will make an accurate claim about the unemployment. Employment rate at present, and they'll say that that's a misleading claim because he used to claim that the unemployment rate was a hoax. You know that it was forty-two percent rather than four percent. So I don't think that you know the fact that he used to say crazy things about the unemployment rate makes it misleading when he uses the correct stat now. So there's there's differences like that, and that's that's the reason that they're I think their count is I think almost double what mine is. For our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with Rob Ford or as familiar with Rob Ford, can, can you describe uh, Ford's relationship uh, when he was the mayor with the press, and how does it compare to Trump's relationship with the press? So it, it was similar but different. Like Ford. Just like Trump, you know, rails against the CNN or the sometimes the New York Times, Ford would rail in general against the media, but mostly against my paper, the Toronto Star. Um, he didn't use the phrase fake news, but it was it was basically, you know, almost word for word the same stuff. It's like the Toronto Star is out to get me. They're making things up about me. They don't cover my accomplishments. The the big difference I find is that Ford actually hated us where Trump, I I think, uh, does this as kind of an an act. Like we know that Trump, (laughs) we know that Trump loves the New York Times. Like we know that he's like calling. He loves Maggie, right? (laughs) He loves Maggie. Like we know that he he's calling up Times reporter and speaking to them off the record or on background. We know that he loves being an anonymous source. We know that he's reading it. Whereas Ford, you know, Rob Ford would not look at me in the hallway. Like he, it was like a visceral, uh, hatred where he thought the star was out to get him. So I think it was, it was certainly strategic on the, on, on Ford's part. You know, he knew that this played well with his base, anti-media sentiment, uh, it helped, you know, convince people that he was the real victim when we were reporting about him, you know, smoking crack and not showing up for work. But, but it was also very deeply felt in a way that I don't think it is for Trump. You can follow Daniel Dale's reporting uh, for the Toronto Star at ddale8 on Twitter. Daniel, thank you very much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. 
Now for the spiel. There was an article in The Atlantic last week by Emily Schulteis called How to Discuss the Far Right Without Empowering It, and it really struck a chord with me on how we ought to engage with trolls. The article describes how journalist Thomas Wald of the German broadcaster ZDF interviewed Alexander Goland, the leader of the far-right group AFD, Alternative for Germany Party. And get this, he simply didn't ask any questions about immigration. They talked about climate change, retirement, digitalization, and stayed away from the one thing that his party has gotten attention for, immigration. I like this because it was a tactical move that I hadn't seen before, and it seemed like it was an effective antidote to the mostly meaningless back and forth we see in the political dialogue between the left and the far right. It was an experiment that worked in that it exposed Garland as someone who didn't really have much to say, and it didn't offer him a platform to share his racist ideas. It worked because it was unexpected. Immigration is a hot-button issue for Germany, but the reflex to stay away from that subject was pragmatic. Further, polling points out that while 39% of the German electorate considers immigration to be an important issue, it's still far less than healthcare, which polls at 69%, and social and retirement policies, which poll at 64%. Sometimes I think the far right suckers us into giving such a big slice of the pie to issues that just don't deserve it. I'd argue that the amount of attention we collectively give to the most toxic ideas aren't actually aligned with how much people care about them, and it only adds to the collective hysteria in the political conversations between the left and far right. Schulteis writes about how this is a contrast compared to the way American media has covered the far right. That is, wall-to-wall coverage at alt-right rallies, despite the fact that journalists sometimes outnumber the actual amount of white supremacists, as we saw in the latest march in Washington, D.C., which gets me thinking about Trump, because every road leads back to Trump and the hysteria around everything he says and does. Many of Trump's actual policies so far could be considered boilerplate conservative ideas, and you can dislike that, but most of the coverage around Trump zeroes in on his latest racist tweet or some diplomatic blunder or other dog whistle issues that only enrage his opponents. To me, the worst part about the hysteria is that it's a distraction to progress. It's a distraction to coalition building. The way the left reacts to Trump only seems to empower him. There have been few occasions in which the left's outrage has successfully forced an apology or changed Trump's behavior or made his supporters see the presidency in a different light. So here's my question. If hysteria is a problem because it's distracting and divisive, what is the most practical and pragmatic way to deal with the hysteria he creates? It reminds me of the question, how do you deal with a bully or the kid in class who causes disruption because he wants attention? Now, I'll preface what I'm about to suggest with the following acknowledgement. I think it's important for the media to cover his lies. It's part of the role of journalists to hold governments accountable. Nothing gets me more fired up than Jake Tapper being Jake Tapper. You know, when he really just socks it to him. But I have this fantasy that in the spirit of the resistance, in the spirit of civil rights, in the spirit of equality, in the spirit of free press, that we actually try different things to engage with Trump and trolls. And I get it if you say, now is not the time to experiment. But maybe we ought to try at least sometimes. So here's another unusual tactic, which again appeals to my personal sensibility. There's a story from October 2017 from Arrow Magazine called How Not to De-Radicalize a Twitter Nazi by Gerwinder Bogal, and it describes a Twitter interaction between the author and a woman named Chelsea. Chelsea was tweeting typical white supremacist stuff, you know, the Jewish conspiracy, blacks are murderers, there's a white genocide happening, India's a backward shit heap, etc., etc. Now, instead of getting angry and furious and upset, which would be a very natural reaction, the author, who is a person of color, calmly replied and offered plain and simple statistical analysis and historical context to counter her wild claims. He also connected on a human level. 
Through the course of their dialogue, Chelsea changed. She lined up, offered some of her own insecurities, and there was a human connection made. There's a twist ending that I won't ruin for you, but I recommend you check out the story. Now, I know some of you might be rolling your eyes that this sounds like some kind of fairy tale, that even if the interaction ended with a positive result, it's an exception, not the rule. I get it that when you're fighting with and for the oppressed, you often have to show your teeth. I get that sometimes you simply have to drown out hateful people. I also get when progressives say that the Michelle Obama style of when they go low, we go high has been a losing strategy and that we must fight back with equal force and muscle. I get all that. But sometimes I wish the left was a little bit more nimble in their counterattack. I wish the left sometimes showed a little bit more restraint, if only in the name of getting some W's on the board. How do we not always do the reflexive and human thing to yell right back? How does the left become less concerned with technically being right and more concerned with strategy that actually moves the ball forward? In the left's commitment to facts and accountability, which I admire and hold dear, sometimes I think we're guilty of giving too much slice of the pie to news stories that simply don't deserve such a big slice of the pie. Trump is a troll. Trump is a racist. Trump is a demagogue in that he appeals to people's fears to create division. We know this. So I think about the Atlantic article. I think about the how to engage a neo-Nazi article. And I think, are there better ways for the media and concerned citizens alike to engage with trolls and their hysteria without adding to it? Are there useful ways for politically concerned people to engage with Trump and trolls without simply screaming back at them? And of course, this is all in the name of making sure that Trump and people like Trump are never elected again. Because right now, the shaming of Trump and his supporters don't actually seem to always help issues of racism or social justice or offer a window for conservatives to reassess their support of Trump. If this tactic did work, I'd be in favor of shaming all day, every day. But as the culture wars go on, this tactic seems less and less successful. When whoever came up with rope-a-dope suggested the idea, it probably sounded unusual. Muhammad Ali was probably like, wait, so you're suggesting that I just get punched for six straight rounds because he might get tired? You're crazy. But the strategy worked. It seemed a little strange in the moment, but it worked. And it was this kind of creative thinking that helped Ali win the match. In the spirit of curiosity, in the spirit of thinking outside the box, the left, or at least some parts of the left, could be served to try something new every once in a while. That's it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Mike Pesca for uh, having me host the show. It's been a true honor. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. Steve Lichtai is executive producer for Slate Podcast. Unperu, dipperu, duperu. And thanks for listening.